because the rate of change is much more rapid now, sort of out there thinking has become a lot more valuable because things are happening so quickly. Hi, it's Holly Ransom here. Welcome one and all to Coffee Pods, Fuel Your Difference, a podcast for the change makers and the game changers. This podcast is built around a simple hypothesis. How long does it take to learn from someone's lifetime of experience? Coffee. So in the time it takes us to share a cup of coffee with our guests or for you to enjoy one as you listen along, we're going to tap into the lifetime of experience of some truly remarkable people who've driven significant change. I'm a big believer that success leaves clues. And be it putting an audacious idea into action, shifting a team culture, or even a country's for that matter, or using their influence to drive progress, all our guests have powerful insights, pragmatic tips, and passionate calls to action that can help each of us to fuel the positive difference we're all working to create in our lives, organisations, and communities. Hello, Coffee Potters. Welcome to the latest podcast. Boy, do we have a ripper guest for you. Her name is Annie Roland Campbell. Now, Annie has a ridiculous number of degrees, too many for me to even list, all around the world, uh, ranging from philosophy and science to theatre and business and technology. But she's fundamentally an observer and practitioner of web science and a passionate advocate for digital literacy. I think particularly fascinatingly for the time of the world that we're in, what Annie talks about is analog leadership in a digital world. And we're going to unpack that in our conversation. She's been a massive leader in bringing technology into government and social policy, developing innovation hubs and pioneering this work at the intersection of creativity and technology. It's a really interesting conversation, and one particularly as we're starting to ask big questions of ourselves, AI, technology, and the way things are developing, that I think will give you a lot of food for thought. Here's Annie. Thanks so much for making the time. I'm blown away reading your background. You have done so many interesting things in your career. I feel like you should be about 150. Oh, thanks. (laughs) You can call me Methuselah from now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, but seriously though, you've packed so much in. It's been a really interesting ride by the looks from reading it from the outside. Oh, look, it's only just started. I've got a long way to go. And I think the best, interestingly enough, Holly, the most fun I'm having now is that my kids are in their 20s and they've got to the point now where, you know, instead of being sort of stupid mum, I've suddenly become, oh, actually mum's not too bad, actually. Mum's sort of got a bit of wisdom. And so... All this stuff, particularly now with Facebook, I'm having, I'm just thoroughly enjoying it. I'm just sitting there going, yeah, this is just so cool. And my kids are sitting there and all their friends are saying, oh my God, isn't this terrible about Facebook? And my kids are going, yeah, we knew it was going to happen. Yeah, <laughs> Mum told us that years ago. We've heard this for so long. It's, we're just so over it. And it's great. You suddenly realise that, because I think a lot of the problem I've had in life, Holly, is that I've been so far ahead of the market. And um, I wanted to ask um, you about that. Yeah. And it means that you can never, if I was driven by commercial imperatives, and I did try that in my life once or twice, it doesn't work because you're just so far ahead. And it's like trying to explain to someone 20 years ago that you would be sitting here with this little handheld device and you would be talking globally. And, you know, people used to look at us like we had rocks in our heads. And of course, mm. until they experience it, technology needs to be experienced. It's very hard to it's very hard to explain. And I'm not a, look, I'm not an inventor. I've never been an inventor, but I'm somebody who once someone explains it to me in a way that I get it, I then start making lots of connections and I then start going, Oh God, that's going to happen. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. Um, and that's sort of, that's, that's, I guess what's probably also adds to the fact that because I've worked in so many different areas, once you've worked in lots of different areas, you, 
can see the connections. Like my, one of my favourite quotes is like Love Havel's, you know, education is the ability to see the hidden connections. Love and that. and that's what I say, you know, that's what I say to my kids. Just go off and get as much education as you can, be as diverse as you can and don't think that you've got to follow a narrow path because I think that the world we're moving into is going to be so complex that, I mean, it's complex enough already, but I don't think it's even begun yet. You're going to need to see that, the ability to connect things together is going to be what is going to enable you to work and survive in the future. So, so yeah. I'm so interested for where the passion for or the work that you're doing now started. How did you latch on to this line of work or line of inquiry might be more accurate? I think that as you look, as you get a bit older and I'm sure, you know, you've spoken to some really interesting people in, in the interviews you've done, you know, when you get to sort of the point where you're in your kind of, you know, your mid fifties. And I, I've always believed that women do their best work from about their mid mid forties to fifties on. You know, beware a woman in her fifties because we've done what we've done. We've had kids. If we're going to have kids, we've gone through all of the stuff and figuring out who we are. And we come out the other end, and then we suddenly go, Ooh, "Now I'm really beginning to understand." But also, I really understand what I don't understand. You know, the number of times that I've seen, particularly people. I remember in the sort of tech space, and one of the first things companies were doing was getting rid of, you know, middle-aged female librarians in their in their fifties. And I just said to them, "You're idiots. These are going to be the most valuable people in your company." I think people are beginning to realise that now, but they've sacked them all, so it's probably too late. But I think it was this inordinate fact that my father never restricted me, mm. and never, you know, it was never like you're a girl, you can't do anything. There's no limit to what you should do. And even though I kind of went on a bit of a zigzag route and. I know my parents would have said a few stages that have been thinking, God, what's she doing? I think that in the end, preparing you for the world is what it's all about. And that's what you've really just got to focus on. So tell me, you described before your career as sort of a, a zigzag type of trajectory. How have you made the decisions you have around where to focus your time, effort and energy? I think, Holly, for probably the first 10, 20 years, probably the first 10 or 15 years, certainly up until I had kids, I think it was really around A, intuition, and B, just good luck and you know, preparation, meeting opportunity. An opportunity came up and I thought, oh, that looks good. And I'm going to do that all the time. It's been that, that something comes up and either I talk my way into it or it just looks good and I happen to be the right, in the right place at the right time. The job with Peter Collins was literally I was sitting next to him at a dinner party and I'd been running the Julian Ashton Art School and we'd applied for funding and then the government had knocked it back. And his wife at the time, Dominic, said to me, so what are you doing? And I just turned around and said, well, I did have a job until your husband knocked my grant funding back and now I'm unemployed. (laughs) And an hour and a half later, he offered me a job. So I think that part of it has been just being in the right place at the right time. And other things have just happened. And I think instead of overthinking them, often I've just gone, okay, I'll do it. And I think as, I get, as I'm getting older, I'm now much more strategic as to what I do. Instead of jumping at things, I really tend to think it through more because, you know, you realise your energy and your time are the most important things that you've got. And I've sat around the table way too many times with a bunch of people who are all terribly enthusiastic and, you know, you have meetings about stuff and it's all terribly exciting and nothing happens. Mm. And I've done that too many times now. So I think there are a lot of those, <laughs> a lot of sitting around the table with people having great ideas and nothing ever happened. And I think you've got to be prepared to do that, particularly when you're younger. You've just got to take things. Like my daughter now is in, you know, everything, including a hot bath. I mean, she just does whatever. She's sort of very similar. And as a result, 
she's hoovering up experiences and things as well. You mentioned that you quite often with your thinking were ahead of the market. Tell us, because I, I think that's something probably a lot of innovators could resonate with. You know, you've got ideas or a way of doing things or approach that you struggle almost to get people on board with and you know it's the direction that logically is going to make sense and people will get to in time, but it doesn't make it any easier in those moments where you can't get people to jump on the bandwagon and join in behind you. Yeah. Um, and that was particularly the, the work I did at Xerox. I mean, even the work at Gamma when we developed the leadership program was the forefront of the digital because the printing and publishing industries were the first that were really hit by digital publishing. And that was because you had Adobe and Apple and desktop publishing all happened in the 90s. So the work we did then was to say, look, let's not focus on the tech itself. Let's actually start looking at what this means in terms of social change. But also we were particularly interested in terms of leadership and management. And The approach we took was really different, but it was very hard to get people to understand that if you're educating these young people in the sort of 90s and early 2000s as we did it, these were going to be the leaders who were going to be leading companies that were completely different to where they are now. A lot of the printing and publishing industry still hasn't got it. A lot of them are still doing the same old thing and gradually getting smaller. And some of the companies obviously are moving. Some of them have died. But then that led to the Xerox work. And the really interesting thing at Xerox was that There were a few at Xerox who really got it. And I think there's two sort of things around this. If you're a real innovator, you either have to get outside an organisation and then you have to, in some ways, you have to dumb down your idea to be something that is really simple and can start to make a real difference in the business environment. And so people can see a short-term benefit. Now, once I think you're in, then you can start building on it. And that's what I mean, like Google's done. I mean, Page and Brin wrote an algorithm because they can see what was going on and it took off and did all sorts of things. In the Xerox world, we came up with all sorts of things 10, 15 years ago that are, of course, now just coming into the market now. And nobody really understood. But there were a number of individuals, you know, in particular, I had a wonderful boss, Andy Berry, actually, who's now the boss of Rico. And if it wasn't for Andy, I wouldn't have stayed because Andy just kept on protecting me and sort of thinking, intuiting that there was something there. So I think for people in organisations, they need someone who will champion them. But the other thing around it is that a real leader in an organisation understands that they need a few of these outliers to challenge the thinking. And the sales guys in Xerox really liked it because I would go out there and, and they would take me in and I'd go and talk to the customers and the customers would be like, oh, my God, that's fantastic. And what they did was that they then, it reinforced the idea of Xerox as a thought leader. They didn't necessarily put anything into practice there and then. And there were two or three initiatives that if we'd built at the time would have been absolute game changers, but the market wasn't ready to adopt them. And so I think that the challenge you then say is that you've either got to kind of dumb it down to the point where you get in with something small or you for me I'm never I've never been driven by the commercial side of it I mean even at Xerox I always had a problem when everybody wanted to make money out of it because I was like oh but can't you see it's all really cool and groovy and it's going to do all sorts of amazing stuff so I'm very lucky that I've had people protecting me and providing me enough to actually you know to live on and pay the bills but if you were commercially driven it's a different thing and there are a couple of you know organizations a couple of people I'm advising now and what I'm trying to do with them, because the rate of change is so is much more rapid now, sort of out there thinking has become a lot more valuable because things are happening so quickly. So I'm finding that I get a bit more traction now and also I've got a track record. But as an individual, I get bored really easily. 
So if I go in and do something, once I've done it, I'm kind of like, yep, now when I, where's that next shiny thing over there that I want to go and find? So people like me are no good in the roles where you expect them to sit there and do the same thing every day because they, they just won't do it and you're not harnessing them. I wanted to ask you about your company, Interstitia. Now, it was formed, if I'm correct, in 1997, originally as a mixed agricultural farming operation, which also worked with Indigenous artists in northern New South Wales. Now, firstly, I'm fascinated by the story behind (laughs) how that started, but also how that's evolved, because that seems very different to what it is that you now do. Yeah. Well, Interstitia started as the hollow production company because my husband and and I, you know, we had a property called Mile Hollow. And so we formed this company and he obviously ran the, we ran the farm through that. And also I did some consulting work. I I started working with the uh, Maury Gallery. They got some bicentenary funding in 1988 because Maury, of course, was the largest Indigenous population outside of um, Redfern, outside of Sydney. And so they got all this money and they basically created this gallery all on the back of this Indigenous funding. And a number of things happened, but basically all the Aboriginals moved out because they didn't really want to be in the gallery, which was full of all these white people who used all this money. And so they went down and got themselves an old bowling shed by the side of a river and they did screen printing and screen making and they were the most wonderful group of people. So I kind of initially went into the gallery, but then I ended up saying, well, no, I think the Aboriginals are much more interesting. So worked with them. And again, it was sort of, if you like, this notion of the interstice, this notion of sitting in the middle. And there was a a woman I worked with at the time, and she actually had a company initially called Interstice, which I don't think exists anymore. But I sort of, she introduced me to the notion of this word, the interstice. And the more I thought about it, and the more I I explored the idea. I realised that actually, as a noun, interstitia, it actually described what I always had done. I'd always sat in the space between things. And so we changed the name. I think the Hollow Production Company was in the 90s. We didn't change the name until probably it was about 97, probably right, or maybe slightly later than that. And then I did all my consulting under that banner. And the thing about interstitia is that when we formed, when my mother died and the kids and I formed a, a, an Australian foundation, the logical thing to do was to, I didn't want to call it after the family or after mum or after anything like that. The logical thing to do was to call it the same thing, interstitia, because it's all about creating this space. And that's a lot of the work that I've done is around creating a container for people to sit in and have the time to reflect. And so whether it's the coaching or the leadership work that I did at Gamma or the workshops that I've run through the School of Government or whatever, I've always made sure that the idea is to create the space. And in that space, which is the space between their everyday lives and their work lives or their personal and private or whatever, that's where really good work gets done. And so that's why we've continued the name. And I've reflected on it numerous times in terms of whether there's another name and I keep on coming back to it. And we've now just created a a UK company and we're going to be doing most of our charitable work eventually through that. And that's got a global perspective now. And my niece, who's also my graphic designer, and, you know, she said to me, she said, oh, nothing like giving me a really hard name to work with that nobody understands. But now I'm really getting it and it's a great name. So not only is it a name, it actually really stands for what we do. And I think that's why it's very important, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about your tagline too. I thought analog leadership in a digital world. There's there's an interesting story behind that. Well, I came up with that 20 years ago. 
and I came up with that when we, we were doing the Gamma Leadership Program, which started and all the work we started in the mid-90s because I guess my intuition was telling me that this world was moving into a world of being data-driven and at the end of the day, it's the humans that are going to make the difference. So, you know, as Kranzberg says, technology is neither good nor bad, but it's not neutral. There's always a bias in it. There's always, um, you know, the atomic bomb itself wasn't a problem. It was the fact that it got dropped on people or viruses or all these things. It's what the humans do with it that is. And so, therefore, for me, leadership is about being analogue. Leadership is not about whether it's on or off. Leadership is all about every spectrum of the colour in between. And the area that we're really focusing and I'm really trying to get my head around now is, you know, what does leadership look like in the 21st century? And therefore, I think that that notion of analogue is really, really important because everybody, everything seems to be going down to being measured. We're moving off into a world where Amazon's going to measure your wrist movements if you're in factories and people have got Fitbits and God knows what. Humans don't work that way. You know, <laughs> humans are all in analogue and they're all over the shop and they'll go off in directions you don't know. And if you don't understand that, you can't really figure out how to provide leadership. You know, and leadership at any level, I'm not just talking CEO level, I'm talking leadership throughout organisations, leadership in small organisations, leadership as individuals um, across the board. I mean, you've been working in this leadership development space for, well, even in interstitia over 20 years now. What is it you believe that's fundamentally shifted around what skills and capabilities leaders need now versus what they might have done 20 years ago? I think that, look, I guess the word, I mean, everybody talks about complexity the fact that things are complex and, I mean, they've always been complex, but I think the sheer volume of complexity and, and, and the problems that we're dealing with, whether it's climate change or whether it's overpopulation or whether it's conflict which leads to massive migration, these problems have always been around. But I think the sheer volume of the problems and I think the scale of them and I think the speed with which they are changing is is actually unprecedented. The other thing around it is that you know, and if, if you've read any, you've all know a Harari, either Sapiens or Homo Deus, we're moving into a phase where we've changed the world and manipulated the world around us. We've always done that. And to an extent, we've changed ourselves. You know, to an extent, we've moved to different climates. We've done things. But these changes have happened over long periods of time, whereas we really are looking at the fact that in 100 years from now, humans who walk this earth are going to be genetically different to the ones that are here now because of human bioengineering. And we've never had that before. This is unprecedented. You know, the other thing around, I guess, the Anthropocene era, you know, you've got a species, you've got one species on the planet that is responsible for major systemic change, but we're actually conscious of it. So we're able to actually reflect and say, well, hold on, is this a good idea or not? And then the third element is that we're actually on the, well, the other element is that we're on the cusp of potentially creating an intelligence greater than ourselves that we don't understand. And I think anthropomorphizing things and talking about machines becoming conscious is a really silly idea because if we create artificial intelligences or artificial machines that achieve consciousness, it won't be a human in consciousness they achieve. It'll be something completely different. And, you know, there's lots of stuff written about this. But leaders need, I believe, to, they need to really be ahead of this. They can't sit there and say, well, that's the role of my CTO or my CIO. A lot of the work we're doing now, because we're bringing all of our fellows to London for our first retreat in June, and we're working on what that, the content of that 
retreat is going to be. And what has struck me in terms of leadership workshops I've done and training I've done and stuff I've read is everything we read is very Western. You know, it's all about what comes out of Harvard or what comes out of INSEAD or what comes out of somewhere or other. And we're not reflecting on what comes out of other parts of the world, what comes out of China, what comes out of India. And in particular, I'm really interested in the Middle East because when the Western world was going through, when the Europe was going through its dark ages, a lot of the, you know, the knowledge was actually kept because it was kept through Islam in the Middle East. And in fact, in Baghdad, there was this one thing called the House of Wisdom, which basically was the repository of all knowledge. And so I'm reading the biography of Salah Adin at the minute. And there's a really interesting element for him that the key technology that he had to deal with was horses. And so as a leader, he made sure he understood horses inside out. He understood their pedigrees, their heritage, which horses were better here. In other words, he understood everything about the leading and most influential technology this time. And I think that's something that is every leader now needs to actively and proactively take on board. And the reality is that they don't. I don't think you have to sit and code. Learning to code is not, not what it's all about. It's actually getting a grip on what are the key things around, where are the trends, how do I find out what's going on, and how can I listen to what's really important for me to listen to rather than all the chatter. And key leaders throughout history have always done that. They've always had their trusted advisors of people who knew what they were talking about. And I don't think in the tech space that we're, I don't think in the tech, not just the tech space as in tech industry, I think across the board, very, very few leaders are doing this. I wanted to ask you on the interaction side, because I think you've touched on so many interesting components of where we're going. And I guess there's two dimensions I want to take it to. The first is really around that piece around how human connection and interactions fundamentally been changed by technology. Because a lot of the reports that I'm reading now are talking about Predominantly now we're communicating via these digital devices. Some will argue that we're more connected than we've ever been. Others will argue we're less connected. Certainly we're starting to see this growing body of evidence around mental health, loss of empathy, impact on sense of belonging as a consequence. I just wanted your reflections. Are you worried about this? Is this something we need to be paying more attention to? I guess I'm, I'm fascinated, you know, you're talking about analogue and digital. How, do, how does that then play out at a broader kind of interaction and communication level? Funny, I was having this conversation with my son last night. He's one of these young people who has always had the tech. He's never been prevented from having the tech. He's a gamer. He'll go online. He gets the point where he went out with a group of friends the other night and they all had dinner. And by nine o'clock or half past nine, they're all on their phones except for him. (laughs) And he said, you know what, mum, I'm going to get to the point where I say to my friends, while we're in the room together, put your phones away. When you go back to your room, whatever, go fill your boots. But I'm a human, I'm sitting in the room with another human. And I think all of this stuff that you're, you know, you've talked about is stuff that's been on the radar now for a few years. And if you read someone like Sherry Turkle, who's been talking about this for a long time, she wrote a book called Alone Together, which is a great book. And she talks about values and she sort of says, the thing about technology is it challenges us to assert our values. But first of all, we have to know what they are. And I think this is where the analogue comes in. So these technologies are impacting us in many, many ways. For a start, we're all sitting at tables hunched over screens, which is really bad for our backs and our postures. So physiologists, and one of my best friends is a physiotherapist, and you know we were talking about this the other day, and she said, we're dealing with all of these problems, not just from sitting at the desk watching a screen, but people hunched over their phones watching a screen, more sedentary lives. 
So this is where the analogue comes in. The reality of it is that as long as we are in a carbon-based physical entity and we know that the brain and the mind and consciousness is not just in the brain, it's actually in our entire bodies, and this is one of the challenges that robotics and AI are having, then we have to live in a physical world. And so what does that physical world mean? That physical world also means that two humans interacting with each other don't just do it via talking or, or hand movements. They look at, you know, they do it by eye, you know, inflections. They look at, they do it by smell. They do it by all of these things. So what I think we're doing, and, and I don't think we really, I think the jury's out yet. I think it's still too early to really understand. We've got to remember that smartphones have only been around for 10 years. You know, we tend to think these are the norm and, and they're a real aberration. There's something that's suddenly come on and humans are reacting in, in ways. And this is all part of the speed bit. Things like human memory that, I mean, I can't remember anybody's phone number anymore because I just pick up my phone and press the button. So we're losing, you know, we're outsourcing our mind to these things. And again, it's not that it's right or wrong, but it's not neutral. There's a value which is built in. And this links into all the human-computer interaction, the HCI stuff. I think the most important thing is that we need to provide, again, this is a kick and goes back to interstitial, we need to provide people with the space to sit back and reflect on their behaviours and ask themselves is this making me more connected or is it not? Is it something I'm happy with and does it sit with my value system or not? And what conscious choices am I going to make about that? So with all this Facebook stuff that's been going on, a number of people to me who've sat there and said, oh, look, I really need to delete my Facebook account, but oh my God, I can't because all my friends are there and this and that and the other. And, and I've sat there and said, you sound like an addict. <laughs> like you, you, you literally, well, we know you're addicted, but are you listening to yourself? And I think this is where the pushback is beginning to come, you know, in terms of teenage symposia or workshops now for parents to take their kids along so that their kids can actually start to learn and reflect about technology. I think things like people putting their kids in the car and immediately switching the video screen on on the back of the seat in front so that it quietens them down for the trip. So nobody's looking out the window, nobody's playing I spy, nobody's communicating. All of these things are conscious choices. And I think these choices are the ones that we need to be asking ourselves. And it could well be that we end up having one group of humans who are just completely, you know, as was put out there in Brave New World, they're completely captured by the things that they love and they can't think anymore. And another group that's actually pushing back and saying, well, no, that's not what we want. We're heading towards a world, I think, of division and the technology. We've got a division in many, many other areas, but I think we're going to have a technology division. And I don't think we've thought about this. And I don't think we're actively saying, as people say, we are the last generation, certainly my generation, and probably, you know, yours is sort of getting it. We're the last generation who's going to remember life before the web and the net. Mm. What is it that we want to keep about what is essentially human and analog? And what are we, what are we prepared to lose? And I don't have an answer to that question, but what we're doing with Brave Conversations and Future Worlds Challenge and the initiatives we've come up with is, again, to provide a space to get people to think and at least think about, more proactively think about the choices that they're using and then think about what the consequences might be. It's such an interesting one, isn't it? Because you, you watch the pace of change and it seems like we're all struggling to find the time 
to deal with it to begin with because we've never been busier, we've never had shorter attention spans than we've got right now. And the revolution with which technology is being introduced is just so rapid. But at the same time, as you're pointing out, we can't afford not to. And you just feel there's not necessarily the forum, the space. And to a degree, there's that difficulty of dealing, as you touched on earlier, with complexity. It's uncertain. It's ambiguous. We're not exactly sure how certain phenomena are going to develop or land or how quickly certain technology will come online. So it's a really new leadership challenge collectively for us as a society. Yeah. And I keep on thinking one of the things, and particularly this has been driven by by the capitalist system and particularly the US, is this rush to adopt something new and this rush to get there. And I keep on saying, where are we rushing to? And actually, do we want to get there when we get there? And this is something that we're now seeing the European Union beginning to push back at where we're seeing certain countries that are adopting technologies, but they're beginning to put boundaries around it. The Chinese, for example, are actually sort of saying, well, hold on, we're going to actually control what this means. And there's a whole lot of reasons why they'll do it, but still they're doing it. The number of CEOs that I've met now are young CEOs in their 40s who refuse to carry a smartphone. They say, well, I've got an EA. You can email my EA. If my EA really needs me, you can text me and you can call me. They've got a good old-fashioned phone. But my job is to be fully present and, in fact, to be analogue. And I think these are the sorts of, again, choices that the individuals need to make. I was hearing a story the other day about people in the public sector, and the public sector hasn't got it on their own, but you know, this fact that they bring people in and they get in there and they basically realise that most of the managers are spending the entire day in their offices responding to their emails. Um, and I had a friend of mine at Xerox and he used to get completely overwhelmed by this. And he used to get to the point where he'd say, at the end of the day, I haven't read the emails. He'd delete the whole lot and he'd give himself time morning and night to do his emails. And if at the end of the day um, he hadn't read them, delete the whole lot. And then he'd do the same thing the next day. And he said, if it's important enough, they can ring me, they can come and find me. And you know what? It didn't affect his career. <laughs> and um, I think that there's a lot of that around. I know that there's moves around, you know, we put things in our devices to stop us from doing stuff. But we've got to understand that we, we have choices around these things. And instead of rushing to be part of the machine, I think this is a big thing. And this is why when I found out about web science and you know, web science is playing in the interstice as well. What web science is, it was created by Tim Berners-Lee and, and Nigel Shadbolt, Jim Handler and Wendy Hall, all the luminaries of the web who were sitting in a bar in New York after a conference and they suddenly realised, oh, my God, we're building Isaac Asimov's psychohistory, which is the ability to hoover up every all the data in the world and see what everybody was doing and then potentially to predict the future. And so... Tim and Nigel went to Gordon Brown and said, oh, look, we've got to do something about this. And as a result, the Web Science Research Institute was born as a joint venture between MIT and Southampton. And what they've been trying to do for the last 12 years really now is to bring the social sciences and technical sciences together in this, in, and look at this interstice, this interconnection. And I guess what happened for me when I found Web Science was I found that there were some people in here who were doing the early predictor stuff. So we had a retreat. Um, not long ago, and JP Rajaswamy, who's the CTO of Deutsche Bank, and JP's on the board, and as he said, there's nowhere else I can go to get the early warning signals. And I think it's these early warning signals that if you know where to look for them, you can find them. And again, they're not necessarily being a warning of dire things to come. They're being a warning of trends, and they're being a warning to say that if you continue down this path, these are the things that are going to happen. 
I think the more that we start to bring not STEM into school, but STEAM, we need the creatives, we need the mavericks, we need people to not be in the machine. And if we're moving towards a world where AI and robotics are going to be taking a lot of the repetitive jobs, then how do we transition the humans into doing different things? Because the jobs are going to be very different. Humans still want to, a lot of humans still want to pitch up to work in the morning because that's where their community lives. But they don't necessarily need to be be doing dumb, repetitive jobs. And they don't need to be pushed into this machine where everything is the same, particularly in the West. I think the West's really got, I mean, obviously there's parts of the world where people are just struggling to eat Mm. um, and their lives are, are very, very different. But I think, you know, globally, particularly because the West is pushing a lot of this stuff, you know, Facebook flying drones so that everybody can get the internet and all that stuff. Well, hold on, let's just think about why they're doing it. Annie, I'm so grateful for the time that you've given us today. There's two kind of final questions I'd, I'd love to throw at you before we finish up. The first, hearing you talk, I'm thinking, wow, there's so much. I feel like I could spend hours just sitting and reflecting around some of the ideas you've thrown out around, really questions that we aren't considering, realities that perhaps were unconsciously already a part of our rhythm without us having intentionality to them. I wanted to ask you, and this is probably to everyone because I don't think this is self-selecting in. All of us are heading into this brave new world that you're talking about. What's your best bit of advice for how we can do that intentionally and I guess with the greatest level of awareness and preparedness that's possible? I think the best advice I'd give to anybody is to, as part of your day, even if it's 10 or 15 minutes, just go for a walk and reflect and disconnect. Put your phone on silent, put it away. Give yourself time every day to just get your feet in the dirt, particularly in Australia where we've got land, and just think about what it is to be a human and anchor to that in every way. Take your kids to the park, get a dog, you know, get a pet. Do something really analog. Go to the beach. Just go for a walk in the trees and reflect on how that makes you feel. And then... The second half of that is understand that all of these tools and techniques, they're just tools and be very conscious as to what you're using them for. And if you're starting to use them to substitute for human interaction or other things, then ask yourself why. And whatever the answer to that is, that's fine. So the first one is, is that. And the second thing is that I think it behoves all of us to go and educate ourselves about what's happening around us whether that's just taking time to read something, an article a day or having a conversation and listen to the younger people because the younger people have got some really good ideas and they're beginning to push back as we're seeing in America and we're seeing lots of places around the world. They're not as silly as we think and I think that combining the wisdom of the elders and the insights of the younger people is really what's going to lead us into the future. Brilliant advice. Uh, And finally, I wanted to ask you, I guess our audience are coming from all different perspectives hearing you talk today about technology, as you just talked about there, that real intergenerational gamut, but people that are passionate about change and uh, I guess the, the lifeblood of Coffee Pod listeners is being the change that they want to see in their communities, organisations or the world. So with that in mind, what, what call to action would you love to leave listeners with today? Just take control of your own life and realise, you know, step back, step back and reflect on what you're doing. and link it to what your values are and really ask yourself what your values are. Brilliant. 
Annie, I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for sharing so generously of your own experience and the work that you're doing with Interstitia at the moment. I think it's fascinating, this two worlds that you straddle. And I'm so grateful that we've got people like yourselves out there actually encouraging and stimulating thought around these conversations to bring that level of consciousness and intentionality to the way that the world's developing leadership technology societal decision making you name it so thank you for your work and thank you for your time today oh thank you thanks for listening i hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life organization or community if that's a yes please take a moment to send us feedback shoot me a tweet at holly ransom leave a review for this coffee pod or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.